Blog Talk Radio. But we are making a stand, and we're waking everybody up that 9-11 was an inside job. And you are the minority. You are the cowards who don't know the truth. You're the people that serve this evil system. You're the people that serve a system that hurts innocent men, women, and children, not just Iraqis, not just Afghans, not just Africans, but the people right here in this nation. You serve a new world order that attacks and feeds on you. And I'm here to tell you that you will be defeated. Your hours are numbered. We've got the energy. We've got the life force. All you've got is evil backing you up. All you've got is greed and liking to look at yourself in the mirror. Because deep down, the New World Order is a pot-bellied, chicken-necked ninny. And all the armor and all the weapons are nothing. You are nothing compared to good. You are nothing compared to life. And you will be defeated. I want the individuals out there, I want free humanity to turn themselves loose, to cut the chains loose, and to use the end of that chain to slap the new world order right upside the head. You've got the power. You want to know who can defeat the new world order? It is you. You're the individuals that are going to be able to defeat this system. You're the individuals that are going to be able to take down the New World Order. It doesn't matter if Ron Paul wins. It doesn't matter if they rig the election. What matters is, is that we're starting to stand up. We're starting to move. We're starting to find our legs. We're starting to build our muscles. We're starting to realize that we do have power, and we can work together, and we can take action, and that the naysayers are a pack of weak liars who have never had any successes in their life and who are upset and frustrated to see us beginning to have victories against tyranny. They don't have any respect for themselves. They don't have any vision. And they don't have any will. And they sure don't have any of the power that shines out of God's soul and energizes all life in the universe. They have wed themselves to death. And they will crumble, and they will fall, and for eternity, we wed ourselves to life, and to everything good, and everything that flows from it. I think at one time or another, we've all questioned as to whether all that we see and and are experiencing in our world has some sort of a rational plan behind it, because we understand now that both the Republican and the Democratic Party in our country are basically run by the same people. The same money finances both sides. We now know, of course, through the work of many historians who have spent their life working on research to show us that both sides of world conflicts have always been financed by the same people. And as I've said before, there seems to be a a method to the madness going on in the world. We know, of course, that we cannot depend on our leaders. Our leaders are misleaders. There is a science that they're following. They have their own agenda, and it doesn't include you. What your government pays for, it gets. If you are paid to do something for the government, they will extract from you exactly what they have paid for. 
when we understand that, then we look at universities and schools, government-financed institutions of education, and see the kind of students and the kind of education that's being turned out by these government-financed schools, logic will tell you that if what is being turned out in those schools was not in accord with what the state and the federal government wanted, then it would change it. The bottom line is that the government is getting what they have ordered. They're getting what they have paid for. They do not want your children to be educated. They do not want you to think too much. That is why our country and our world has become so proliferated with entertainments, mass media, game shows, television shows, amusement parks, drugs, alcohol, and every kind of entertainment that keep the human mind entertained so that you don't get in the way of important people by doing too much thinking. You had better wake up and understand that there are people who are guiding your life and you don't even know it. And all American citizens, I think, have suspected something like this is going on. But we're all too busy trying to stay alive and live our lives. And after all, what can one person do about it? This is the most powerful government the world has ever known. They have a, they had the ability to get a hold on Adolf Hitler 50 years ago. He had a standing army, the greatest navy, air force, military, secret underworld organizations operating throughout the world. But this government got a hold on Adolf Hitler because it chose to and it wanted to. And if you do not pay your income taxes, they will find you if you go to the Amazon jungle and they will make an example of you. They will find you and they will deal with you and you know it. But for some reason they're unable to Patriots of Scotland, starving and outnumbered, charged the fields of Bannockburn. They fought like warrior poets. They fought like Scotsmen. And won their freedom. All right, everybody. Joseph Gibson here, podcasting, understanding the times in which we live today. Let's just go ahead and get into the... Uh some documentaries here tonight and uh, learn a little bit of stuff. So, uh, 
without further ado, let's get it going. These are tumultuous times in the U.S. The country has been shaken by protests, sparked by the death of George Floyd, a black man who died while being arrested by a white police officer. The demonstrations are the largest seen in decades. Protesters are demanding an end to police brutality and racism. It's almost like police officers have been able to just do whatever they've been wanting to do. On the streets, this frustration turns to violence. Buildings are torched and businesses plundered. Right-wing militias like American Wolves take it upon themselves to preserve law and order. These people that are down there, they're not protesters, they're criminals, and they're actively working to help destabilize our government. And President Trump keeps fueling the tensions with his rhetoric. Stand back and stand by. October in Louisville, Kentucky, a city scarred by the pandemic and protests. Windows are boarded up. The clashes that occurred here in recent months have left their mark. The city is still reeling from the death of black medical worker Brianna Taylor, who died while police were searching her home in March. Black Lives Matter activist Katura Haran wants justice for Brianna. She accuses the police of getting away with murder thanks to the structural racism in the U.S. Breonna Taylor is her hero and the symbol of a movement that will no longer be silenced. Personally and emotionally, Breonna Taylor's name, uh, for me, it, it gives me strength. She gives me hope. Um, and she gives me a reason to wake up every day um, and, and fight for justice. I mean, um, I'm, I'm, I'm 40 years old, and um, we have I've seen uh, the injustices of, of, of black people um, in this nation. And, um, you know, the black woman is the most disrespected woman um, in America. And so um, for me, um, you know, she, she just gives me that strength to keep fighting. Brianna Taylor lived here on the outskirts of Louisville. In March, police entered her apartment using a no-knock warrant. This type of search warrant authorizes officers to enter private premises without announcing their presence and forcibly open doors. The police were searching for drugs but found none. An exchange of gunfire ensued, and Brianna Taylor died in a hail of bullets. You can see from out here that when police officers started um, shooting that they shot from outside the home. And so here's one still bullet hole in the police evidence tape um, that was still there. So it shows evidence that they were shooting from outside. And so, you know, it's just very um, unfortunate. And um, just the amount of bullets that um, was reported, um, over 20 bullets shot um, that night um, inside the home. Police strategist Katura Haran drafted Brianna's law, which bans the use of no-knock warrants in Louisville. It's now been passed, and she hopes it will soon be adopted throughout Kentucky.
She says the roots of police brutality lie in the judicial system and with the police themselves. There's different policies that are passed at the legislative level, and then you see different police policies or police practices that are done on, on the ground level. And so I think that it's a combination of, of all the things and then um, also just a combination of um, no police accountability, like no one is really holding um, the police accountable, and it's almost like police officers have been able to just do whatever they've been wanting to do. 3,000 kilometers to the west, they aim to provide backup to the police. At a secret location in the U.S. state of Washington, members of the American Wolf Militia meet for shooting practice. Their leader, entrepreneur Peter Diaz. Their weapon of choice, the infamous AK-47, also known as the Kalashnikov. Originally developed for the Soviet Army, Diaz now plans to use the assault rifle to defend America's freedom. founded American Wolf not long ago. He's financed the militia using more than $100,000 of his own money earned by renting out office furniture. He feels it's his mission to protect America with arms if necessary. I think it should be important for everybody to be familiar with it because especially right now, uh, you just don't really know what's going to happen next. Um, the place that we're in, that this country and the world really is in right now, if I would have told you six months or a year ago that we were going to be locked down, told where you could travel, um, told what you can and can't do, who you can and can't hang out with, where you can eat, where you can't eat, the amount of control that's being um, pushed on us right now, nobody would have ever believed me. Um, so saying something that this may be important in the future, um, isn't as outlandish as one would think. It's estimated the USA is home to some 180 militias. American Wolf has around 10 active members. Many are former soldiers and, like Peter Diaz, subscribe to conspiracy theories. right now is our government is in the midst of a coup. Uh, there's certain members of our government who are actively working to change this government from what it's designed to be, uh, the land of opportunity. They're trying to turn us into some sort of socialist government, a new form of government, humanitarianism. Um, I don't know who or why exactly, but it really doesn't matter who or why. It, all that matters is it doesn't happen. Cynthia Miller-Idris is all too familiar with these kinds of theories. She heads the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab at the American University in Washington, D.C. And she warns that militias are among those profiting most from the current political climate. All the militia groups, and in fact, I would say all extremist groups, essentially are defined by most centrally by a sense of threat, a sense of existential threat, a dire threat, a feeling that my people, whether that's a race or a gender or, or a nation, are 
at threat because of this other group and that I'm morally compelled to act against them. And so that takes heroic, warrior-like action. Katura Haran's whole life has been shaped by structural racism. She says she's never broken the law, yet she's been arrested several times. From an early age, her parents made her aware that the police could pose a very real threat. The fear of being stopped by the cops follows her wherever she goes. It's always been a situation where um, you're told whenever you um, interact with the police, you know, you... Um, back then, you know, when I, I grew up, it was um, say yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, uh, yes, sir, no, sir, uh, do everything that they ask you to do. And now that that is kind of shifted to where it's make sure that your um, hands are being seen, keep your hands on the steering wheel, if you're going to pull something out of your glove box like your insurance or registration, um, make sure you're telling them exactly what you're doing at every single moment. For years, Katura Haran had been thinking of buying a handgun. The protests in recent months have finally made up her mind. So if you take the mag out, just hit that button right there. There you go. And then slide this one in there. You'll be able to feel the difference. Just slide it. Turn it this way. Oh, this one. There you go. And just punch it in there. Now put it in your hand. Mm. To feel better? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because of this. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of folks, when they get smaller guns and they grip it, they don't like for their pinky to float. So what I was able to get was a 9-millimeter. Very small. I really liked it because it fits in my hand. Um, I really liked the grip on it. And so for me, it was, it, 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 I was looking for something that is lightweight and um, something that I could fit, that could, you know, I could have on me and conceal, um, and it wasn't very heavy. And so uh, it's perfect. And so now I just need to get to a gun range. Yet it's not fear of the police that's convinced her to get a gun. She says it's the armed militias who are turning up at protests more and more often. I mean, it's scary, obviously, and you never know what's going to happen when you're out. And um, I think that it's important um, if, if, if folks can um, arm themselves for that extra protection, that they do so. Um, I, I don't go out by myself now, and so um, I'm usually with um, at least one or two other people. And so um, if there's a case where I need to be out alone, then this is, this is something that I can take with me to, to feel secure. Fifteen minutes, that's all the time it takes to buy a gun in Kentucky. And saleswoman Tanae Deaton says she's never sold as many firearms as she has in recent months. She thinks it's right that more and more civilians are taking matters into their own hands, especially in times like these. I think it's nice that people are willing to do something like that, but I fear for them, you know, because they don't have the training that some of the police officers may have, or it scares me. So it's nice to know that there's people out there that are willing to risk their lives for something like that that doesn't necessarily belong to them. The militia American Wolf en route to what they call their next mission, their destination, Portland, Oregon. Peter Diaz wants to see the Black Lives Matter protests there for himself. 
still he's already convinced they're violent, though he's never actually been there. His pistol is always within reach to use in self-defense, he says. These people that are down there, they're not protesters, they're criminals, and they're actively working to help destabilize our government to destroy our way of life. That's what we're up against right now. And going down in full riot gear and throwing rocks or breaking windows and looting shops, how does that have anything to do whatsoever with racial equality? They use the BLM movement simply to keep public support. For months, activists have been taking to the streets of Portland. Deaths have resulted from the clashes between left and right-wing demonstrators. At the height of the conflict, Donald Trump sent anonymous federal agents into the city in a bid to present himself as the law and order president. The demonstrators view the presence of the right-wing militia as a provocation and start chanting their discontent. Peter Diaz and his men soon find themselves surrounded by Black Lives Matter activists. This man even threatens the militiamen with physical violence. Despite the crush of people, none of Diaz's men are wearing masks. The mood grows increasingly tense. They were walking around as a group of people, into a group of people, surrounded by a group of people, while not wearing face coverings, despite that being the law, understandably so, because we're in the middle of a pandemic. Like, we're all wearing masks. Right? I believe, like, some of it has to do with uh, our president. Uh, he has let that kind of behavior and that ideology just flourish. And I think that now they think that they have power um, when they don't. We're out here for Black Lives Matter. And they're out here for white supremacy. So there's a clear, you know, there's a clear difference of opinion, and their opinion is not welcome here. It's actually not welcome anywhere. Diaz insists his group doesn't stand for white supremacy, yet it doesn't take long for a fight to break out. He accuses a protester of taking drugs. She's not on drugs. That's my friend. Don't start that. She's far from drugs. So don't come out here with that. That's that typical white that y'all say about black people. Own drugs. So don't start that. Don't start that. Don't start that. Don't start that. I heard everything you said because I've been standing. My opinion, when it gets to this type of, um, of mob mentality, it should be dispersed. That's where I stand with it. Uh, the police hanging back, I understand that they're worried about uh, the number's growing, but I would handle the situation differently if, if I had the manpower and equipment. On this night, the police keep hanging back. Eventually, Peter Diaz and his men are forced to retreat by Black Lives Matter demonstrators. I think we have been witnessing a polarization of society and now much more a radicalization of society, particularly among young people. And now we're also seeing that, I think, people taking to the streets, which 
and peaceful protest makes perfect sense. But when you combine that with gun sales and with people feeling extraordinarily anxious, both about the rise of these militias and the violence that they're seeing and accelerating plots and violence, uh, and we're seeing, um, you know, just increasing media coverage of them in the streets and uncertainty about what's happening next, an unknown danger with the virus or how things are going to play out. Uh, I think we're in a really, it's sort of a tinderbox situation. Kenosha, Wisconsin, in late August. After African-American Jacob Blake was shot by police, protesters set buildings on fire. Once again, people's anger spilled out onto the streets. They're saying enough is enough and demanding an end to police brutality. Scenes like these ones in Kenosha this past summer have become a common sight in cities across the U.S. The police respond with tear gas and the demonstrators by burning barricades. The police weren't always able to prevent incidents of looting and plundering, so right-wing militias like the Kenosha Guards took it up on themselves to patrol the streets. Among them was a 17-year-old Trump supporter seen here in cell phone footage. After being chased, he allegedly shot dead two Black Lives Matter demonstrators. Exclusive images taken by our camera team show the rifleman just after the shootings. He tries to turn himself over to the police to no avail. He was not arrested and charged with murder until the following day. The American Wolf militia later called him a hero and collected tens of thousands of dollars in donations towards his defense. The double murder suspect even received backing from the White House. He was trying to get away from them, I guess, it looks like, and he fell, and then they very violently attacked him, and it was something that we're looking at right now, and it's under investigation, but uh, I, I guess he was in very big trouble. He would have been, I, he probably would have been killed. I mean, the most important thing, I think, is that he never should have been there in the first place, right? And to react after that, from any elected official or authority to have a reaction that legitimizes violence or valorizes it by calling him an American hero or saying that he was justified in his violence, even if it turns out to be self-defense, even if, you know, it is, really what we need is the escalation and a walking back of that kind of um, rhetoric and not something that further legitimizes the next person to feel like they should go out and take matters into their own hands. Katura Heron doesn't buy Donald Trump's rhetoric. She holds the president responsible for the fact that the two sides' differences are growing more irreconcilable by the day. And that civilians now feel the need to patrol the streets armed with weapons. He was in very big trouble. He would have been, I, he probably would have been killed. But... They're coming out because, um, you know, the leader of this nation is calling for them to be out. And so they're doing exactly what he's asked them to do. Um, I mean, you see in, in the situation in Kenosha, 
the young man who went there. He didn't even live in Kenosha, um, you know, but he felt like that um, he needed to come there and, and do what um, the leader of this nation has said. And, and, and he actually um, caused and brutalized and caused more harm to that community. And as we've seen in Portland, Cynthia Miller-Idris has another worry. The more often President Trump backs the right-wing militias, the more it emboldens them. Donald Trump clearly stated his support for such groups during his first TV debate with Joe Biden. Are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups and to say that they need to stand down? Stand back and stand by, but I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, Somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left, because this is not a right-wing problem. Immediately, my research team was seeing online, you know, chatter in far-right channels that were saying, you know, thumbs up, and they, they created a new logo, um, you know, right away for the Proud Boys. There was a T-shirt on, for sale within 12 hours with it on it. Um, so they immediately saw it as a, we're, we're being called to action and being called to support the president and being called to support the administration. In late August, thousands took to the streets of Washington to protest against the president. In front of the White House, they demanded an end to racism and made clear who they held politically responsible. On August 28th, its 57th anniversary, Martin Luther King's famous I Have a Dream speech was played over loudspeakers. Live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident. I think it's a shame to see where we were 57 years ago and where we are now, that he was making that speech that still applies to today. Not barely anything has changed. And yes, they're doing all these performative acts, naming streets. Even this right here, even though it's nice, it's pretty to look at, real change is not being committed. I personally think that we have a president that is evoking the white racism and the racial tension to come out. It's, it's something that I never thought would happen. Um, growing up, you think that there's progress, and then now you see that there hasn't been much progress. Mingling among the demonstrators are members of radical black nationalist organizations like the New Black Panthers and the NFAC, a fringe group that's grown substantially of late. NFAC leader Grandmaster Jay accuses white sympathizers of the Black Lives Matter movement of hypocrisy. Even though you say Black Lives Matter, even though you're out here with your fists in the air, even though you acting like you down for the cause, you ain't redistributed the wealth. You ain't redistributed the land. You ain't came back and redistributed the political power. In other words, you're just giving us lip service, and we don't need no more of that. The ultimate goal is to be treated as an equal human being in every aspect that there is. But the way that we get there is we need some space to heal. We need some space to recover from 400 years of enslavement. We need some place to go back and remember 25 dynasties of our culture that's been taken away from us. We need some place to go and get over post-traumatic slave disorder. We need somewhere to go and learn and feel proud about ourselves and to love ourselves. We need that. So we need some space to do that. And since the United States of America is unwilling or hasn't been given the opportunity, which they have, to give us that space, we've got to create it on our own. If inside of the confines of the law, if that works. But if not, then I guess we just have to do it at the barrel of a gun. 
The NFAC trains its members how to use weapons to pursue the militia's dream of creating its own all-black state. And it says to defend itself against the attacks by white police officers. Its leader rejects criticism of the organization's paramilitary dress. Why is it that when we decide to dress like this, it's a problem? But when, you, when people who look like you decide to not only dress up like us, but get weapons, threaten the police, threaten politicians, it's not called the militia, it's not called the white militia, it's called citizens that are protesting. But the moment we do it, why are you doing it? Are the guns necessary? Why are y'all dressed like that? Who are you going to attack? When the truth of the matter is, we are the response. We're not the offense. We're the defense. There have long been black separatist movements as well, but the white supremacist separatist movements are calling for a white ethnostate. In many ways now we're seeing that echoed in that same kind of a call. And I think that's a reflection of the of this growing sense of polarization, a, a kind of radicalization, to, and, a, and a giving up on the idea of coexistence um, for larger numbers of people, of coexistence and, and, and really sort of peaceful democracy in the way that our democracy is. So I think those are real challenges. Peter Diaz is paying a visit to his parents who live in Washington State. Hello? Hey, son. Hey, Mom. How are you? Hello, doing really well. Peter's mother, Ann Diaz, hasn't seen much of her son since he began touring through the United States with his militia. While he's concerned about his country's future, she's more worried about his safety. Peter, do you want the cilantro? Uh, it was for the, uh, the plants. Uh, thank you. Oh, it's too hot out here. I don't think there's any reason for violence, and that is the piece that, that really frightens me. Um, Peter has had several death threats, and I'm terrified for that, honestly, as his mother. I would like for the police to do their jobs and for people like my son and others to be able to stand down and not take up arms and not have to feel that they need to protect themselves or their families or their way of life, because I think in some ways that's where we're going to. This culture war keeps creating ever greater divisions in American society. Yet it is in itself full of contradictions, as can be seen in Peter Diaz's own family. His father was an illegal immigrant who came to the U.S. from Mexico. His mother is a white American. Yet the family views immigration as a threat and seeks to defend what's theirs. We're not in a position right now to be able to help people coming here. We need to take care of the issues we have here already and the people who are starving to death in the country who are already citizens before we're really in a position to welcome more people in and help them. Louisville, Kentucky in October. Four weeks ahead of the presidential elections, protesters take to the streets once again. In late September, Kentucky's Attorney General revealed that the police officers who shot Breonna Taylor would not face murder charges. The decision came as a shock for Keturah Heron and many others. She fears the months of protests were all in vain. Now she's pinning all her hopes on a new president will tackle the systemic racism in her country. I think that this is probably the biggest election um, 
in our lifetime. I think that, you know, when we were voting in um, uh, past President Obama, we felt like that that was a big election. And I think that this election is bigger than that. I think that uh, we have to um, end this rhetoric. We have to um, protect all uh, folks in the United States. And I don't think that the current um, administration has done that. Um, I think that they um, have, have not, I feel like that they've been misusing and abusing their power. And so um, th this, this, this election is, is the most important that I've ever seen. is especially concerned that Donald Trump has refused to commit to a peaceful transfer of power should he lose the election. In Louisville, they're singing for peace and for an end of the escalation of violence.
Christian, where did the Christian one go now? All right, here we go. Our DNA is Christian. Our roots are Christian. We aren't Muslim. We we aren't uh, atheist. America is the greatest country that's ever existed, and it's because of Judeo-Christian values. How far have we come from the basic bipartisan agreement in favor of religious liberty? I had to choose between my job and my faith. And nobody in America should have to face that kind of decision. Does the goal of making America more Christian infringe upon the rights of other faiths? Yes. There's some movement that's happening towards a particular agenda, an ideology that I, I think is frankly quite harmful. When the hospital denied me medically necessary care, I was in shock. Using religion or any other excuse is not okay. The Christian right and their claims of religious liberty, they're not advocating for everybody's religious liberty. They're advocating for theirs. All of that has theological undertones that are deeply rooted in a dysfunctional and distorted view of Christianity. Ideas and notions of supremacy, superiority, and racial supremacy and superiority. Our country was founded as a Christian nation, but uh, we certainly are not that today. to be a coach after uh, we went to a couple of Bremerton football games and I thought I could make a difference with these young men. I didn't know a whole lot of the X's and O's. I said I know about team building, I know about developing young men and I could do the leadership and character building of, of your football team. And they said we got a lot of X and O's guys so yeah this is exactly what our football program needs. one of those troubled youths that you didn't want to hang out with, you wouldn't want your kids to hang out with. Hey, how's it going? How you doing? It's a break in the houses. We'd steal stuff. We'd skip school. Uh, get in a lot of fights. I went to a Catholic school until I got expelled, and I kind of floated around and fought the system forever and really had not much of any faith growing up. I found my faith was actually from my childhood sweetheart. She was uh, one of those good Christian girls, always went to church, and I was always that bad boy. God, I pray that you just give him peace and comfort knowing he's in your hands. My life has really changed since that moment, you know, when I started giving my life to God. And I said, I'm all in, and for the rest of my life, I'm going to serve you, God. I started praying at the games at the very first game. When I first started praying, it was just myself. We would meet the other team out onto the 50-yard line, shake hands, and I would just take a knee there and say a quick prayer of thanks and continue on with the rest of the team. And after about six months, one of the kids asked me, can we join you out there? I said, well, this is America. Of course you could join me. You know, a couple of them came out, and then more kids came out, and then ended up being, you know, over the years, the entire team was coming out. It was never required to join in prayer. 
I never ask anybody. I never force anybody. And I got warned over the years that, oh, yeah, well, we can't do that. Teachers can't do that because we'll get in trouble. And I just kept saying, you know, that this is America. You are protected under these rights. It seemed ridiculous to me that anybody would ever get in trouble for something like that. gave me the ultimatum. It was probably two hours before the game. They called me into the principal's office and they gave me the directive and it says, if you pray on the football field, we will suspend you from, from coaching. Well, that was the one thing I just could not bend. I remember walking out to the 50-yard line and uh, took a knee. I'm saying, God, this is the last time I'm going to be out here as a football coach. And that part just devastates you. I know that I was called to be a coach. This was my joy in my life, being part of this. Now I had to choose between my job and my faith. And nobody in America should have to face that kind of decision. I'm not a legal expert and, or a constitutional expert. I just know what the First Amendment says. nonsense about uh, separation of church and state has gotten way, way beyond the bounds of what the founders of our Constitution thought. Christians are tired of being bullied for their faith in the public square. The, the left, uh, the socialists, have made it very clear that they stand against the church. Unless we bow down and accept their agenda... You know, we don't have government funding. All of this comes from God's people. So we just give glory to him. Everybody staying healthy? Good. I do believe that there is an effort to take Christ, God, out of uh, the, public, the public square. And our country is uh, in trouble. We're more divided today since the Civil War. Only God can fix the problems we face as a country. And I think it goes back to uh, prayer in school. We've not only taken God out of, out of the prayer out of school, but we've taken God out of school, out of education. I believe Christians are being persecuted. I believe religious liberty is under attack, and we've seen that. Our country was founded as a Christian nation, but uh, we certainly are not that today. The United States Constitution actually does not say anything about the separation of church and state. They're implied, though. The Founding Fathers were much more concerned about the protection of churches. They didn't want the state to intervene in the lives of churches in preventing people from worship. There's a lot of debate to what extent can churches influence political life or public life. Really, people are not talking about whether or not America is a Christian nation or not before, say, 1980, before the Reagan era, before the rise of the religious right in the late 1970s. But it was really evangelicals and I think their sense of victimhood after the cultural changes of the 1960s, the removal of prayer from public schools, the removal of Bible reading from public schools, the development of a more diverse nation with new immigration coming into the country, the fear of abortion.
So what do Christians believe when they say religious liberty is under attack? Most of the Christian right approaches it as a political issue. There's a great spiritual awakening in America. Freedom is not America's gift to the world. Freedom is the almighty God's gift to each man and woman in this world. We all salute the same great American flag. And we are all made by the same almighty God. Right now, evangelicals make up about 20 to 25 percent of the United States population. They are a significant voting bloc. They're extremely influential, and they have convinced the overwhelming majority of white American evangelicals that indeed America is perhaps in jeopardy of losing that identity as a Christian nation. Christian nationalist is a, is a relatively new word, and I would argue that a Christian nationalist believes that Christianity was privileged at the time of the founding, and thus it should be always privileged. So those who fuse love of country, patriotism with Christianity, and then develop a political philosophy built upon those beliefs that America is exceptional, and we need to build public policy around those convictions. Hey, brother, God bless you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being here, sir. There you go, hon. You found, you found Arlene. You found Arlene. Oh, you look great. I love the red. Thanks for loving my kid. You know, I'm a pastor's kid, so I grew up in a pastor's home. You ready? Do it. Met the Lord as a kid, and then rededicated my life to Christ as a college student. So my upbringing and, and my life has basically been in the Christian faith. You ready? You gonna say? Yeah, I'm gonna. Right. I always had a deep faith that God was real, and I could feel His spirit in me. I could feel His tug on my heart. And I wanted to serve him. God bless you. I'm, I'm excited about what God is doing. This is, a, this is a movement of gospel patriots happening in Tennessee. Amen? Amen. Tennessee is going to be a hub of gospel-centered patriots. concept to name a church Patriot Church, basically stating in the name that we love God, but we also love this country, and we're going to fight for it. When I started Patriot Church, I knew I would garner a ton of criticism from those that don't believe in Christ and from many, many Christians. What I'm doing is so non-existent and being this blatant about it, talking about things pertaining to the country. Heavenly Father, we pray for this service today. We want God in America again. And so, Lord, use us as Patriot Church, as America's Church. I pray that pastors 
would, would wake up and start fighting the good fight. We love you and praise you. And if you love Jesus and the United States, say, Amen. Patriot Church says, we're in the fight.
Story at 11, the push to put the Lord's Scripture into Florida public schools just got another nudge from a state senator. The words, in God we trust, will be required reading in Louisiana schools this year. A new rule could allow foster care and adoption agencies to deny their services to LGBTQ couples for religious reasons. I think as you look at American history, the debate about what should be the relationship between church and state, I mean, it goes back to the beginning. There had not been a government that had decided to separate church and state like we did. But that strand pops up. We saw it pop up multiple times. You know, for example, we saw it pop up really strong in the 1950s. That's when we put under God in the Pledge of Allegiance. It's when we adopted in God we trust. And it's not happening in a vacuum. It's happening because we're in the middle of a cold war against that atheistic Soviet Union. And so we need to conjure up that God is on our side. We are definitely seeing another wave. It's coming back again, and I think this time it's this concern that we, the white evangelical, white Christians, are losing control of our country. This bill, as written, does create a significant establishment problem by saying that religious groups have special privileges and rights over other groups. I've seen the look of surprise on legislators when I will announce at the beginning of a testimony in a hearing that I'm a Baptist minister and I am opposing this bill to promote Christianity in public schools precisely because of my faith. These bills don't come out of nowhere. They they definitely come from this ideology that starts with this myth about the founding of America, that somehow we were started as a Christian nation. Part of the idea of America as a Christian nation and a Christian culture is deeply rooted in understanding of the family. I don't think many churches are trying to face the the challenges of the LGBTQ community and the challenges of some of these other issues that they're concerned about. But I do see many churches, especially certain denominations, kind of what we might say doubling down on their traditional beliefs. I think that I always knew that I was transgender from a young age. I didn't officially come out until I was in my 20s. After coming out, I decided to get the hysterectomy. I have a team of doctors and healthcare professionals, mental healthcare professionals that I go to, um, that I started you know, hormone therapy with and saw regularly. It was a decision that we all made together that it was medically necessary for me to get the hysterectomy. Hospital is, we have a very long relationship. It's my neighborhood hospital. I lost three grandparents at St. Joe's. I lost my mother at St. Joe's. I've spent time myself there as a patient. So it was a place that I was comfortable with. After we had decided that the hysterectomy was what was needed to do next, I was referred to Dr. Gay by a family friend. I made an appointment. I went to see him. He seemed very supportive, I was willing to schedule the surgery. Then everything changed. That's when I received an email from Father Rooney of the hospital that Just relax, that go, relax, 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 we're live now. Ready? When the hospital denied me 
medically necessary care, I was in shock because if it's something that I need, how can a hospital deny you? I, I couldn't understand it. I took it as I was being discriminated against. I was extremely upset. I was embarrassed. I felt humiliated. Uh, I was hurt. We were just born into the wrong body. That, that's, that's what it is. Why would it be, not be okay for a trans person to get healthcare that they need? We all have our different beliefs, but I think globally we should all believe in everybody being able to have equal rights and the right to healthcare. And I don't think anybody sh should have an excuse to not provide those simple things in life. related to Christian schools, Christian colleges, um, Christian businesses. White evangelicals want to be able to say, I will not bake a cake for a gay wedding. If they're pharmacists, they want to say, I'm not going to sell morning after contraceptives. It is essentially taking the 14th Amendment as civil rights versus the First Amendment, religious liberty. This is not easily decided because both of these both of these um, sides are going to have legitimate arguments to make on this point. I, I think many who leave the faith of their parents uh, are concerned about the fact that politics has in some ways infiltrated the church and caused divisions. It's been particularly acute, I think, during the Trump uh, age, but this has been a problem, I think, for the last 40 years or so. And it's really turning people off to... Uh, to Christianity. I think that people who think being Christian means being intolerant. It means spewing hatred and bitterness. It means not caring about those who suffer, who are hurting, who are wounded in this country, just to make sure that they maintain their power and privilege. We are an ever-evolving community of visionaries, dreamers, and doers. The way I understand the teaching of the carpenter is that we all, as human beings, are open and affirming. When you do that, you don't have to pick and choose who you affirm. Well, we affirm the LGBTQ community. Well, over here we affirm single black mothers with three children. Over here we affirm single dads who are trying to... No. We affirm human beings. And in this space, which it should be, all human beings ought to find a resting place and a space of affirmation. There are a lot of young people here, in spite of what the statistics say, because they don't find a space that is intolerant and rigid. We have told people in the world's wealthiest supposedly country that it's okay that you do not have food to eat at night. It's okay you don't have a place to sleep at night. It's okay that you're homeless and hungry. It's okay that you don't have health care to tend to the basic needs of your life. That that is okay, that is absurd. The problematic nature of this country and Christianity begins in 1619 when the first slaves arrived to this country. If we were a quote-unquote Christian nation, there are certain harsh realities that in many ways define this country that would not exist. So we love the use of the name of Jesus, but we don't honor the teaching. It is Christianity or nothing, and there's no tolerance, acceptance of people of other faith. For me in, in this church, my focus is so on making sure that we're true to the teaching of the carpenter and living that life.
and making that word become flesh in our journey as believers, there's no room or time or space in my teaching or in my faith to hate another religion. I want Christians in office. I want this country to have Christian principles and Christian laws and Christian ways. We're about to lose this country as we've always known it. It's about to become something that a lot of people want, but I don't want it. My parents don't want it. My grandparents don't want it. It's not according to our heritage. That's why I'm fighting so hard to keep it a Christian nation. Does the goal of making America more Christian infringe upon the rights of other faiths? Uh, yes. I think anytime you want to create a Christian nation or any kind of nation, a Muslim nation, a Hindu nation, uh, obviously those who are representative of other religious groups within that country uh, are going to be second-class citizens. We're in this phase where we're redefining what religious liberty even means. Now I have to not only try to convince conservatives that we should believe in true religious liberty for all people, I also have to convince liberals that religious liberty is a good thing and not just a weapon of the conservatives. I feel like almost both sides are almost giving up on this true religious liberty idea because it has been so politicized and misused. If someone else's liberty is endangered, all of our liberty is at danger. What's troubling about the Christian life, I think, is not that they're Christian, not that they have a set of beliefs that maybe other people don't have. I think what's troubling is that there doesn't actually seem to be a real investment in finding a way for us to find a way together. And the investment really seems to be in amassing power. Now the Bible says, blessed are the nations that, uh, that, that worship him. God has blessed America more than any country in the world. We need to protect our religious liberty, and we, we need to uh, stand up for our, our rights. If we don't, we'll lose them. What I'm actually thinking about right now is uh, how it says nights across here and hearing the whole entire team doing the nights and spelling it out while we're doing uh, the jumping jack. Americans are in the streets tonight demanding justice after the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Students across the country are continuing to call for reform in their education system. 2020 reignited the push to change how schools teach America's youth about race. When you bring in different perspectives and different people's stories and experience, it enriches education. It expands all children's learning. They want entire schools turned over to that sort of teaching being the center of all curricula. That's not an education. That is an academy of anti-racism. Rumblings of resistance turned into a full-blown backlash. The way diversity was being practiced at Riverdale was diminishing people. When you hear them talk about the sin of whiteness, what you're watching is the death of our future as a country. Protests against so-called critical race theory turned political putting targets on teachers' backs. The Sullivan County teachers have stepped closer to being fired by the school district. We've discussed things like COVID, Me Too, climate change. Have you ever received complaints about any of the other issues? No, never. Just on race. Just on race. 
Now, sweeping bans are also setting their sights on subjects well beyond race. CRT is the catchphrase. What is actually happening in this show is that you're not allowed to talk about racism, you're not allowed to talk about sexism, you're not allowed to talk about sexual orientation. And it has had a chilling effect. The intention is really to put us in this war against each other. Thank you for joining us today. Last fall, I pulled my kids from Riverdale Country School. What schools like Riverdale are doing to our children in the name of anti-racism is in fact teaching them racism. In 2021, investor and entrepreneur Brian Barton launched FAIR, which stands for Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. He says FAIR is a response to the diversity and inclusion efforts at his kids' private school, which he believes are exacerbating the problem they were created to solve. So tell me about FAIR. What is the organization about? What are your aims? FAIR is committed to advancing civil rights and liberties and a common culture of fairness, understanding, and humanity. We're specifically focused on educating people about Um, what I call an intolerant orthodoxy. We're not just defining ourselves by what we're against, right, being anti-racist, but we're also defining ourselves by what we're for, which is bringing people together and recognizing our, our shared humanity. Bartoning is one of a handful of parents who have gotten attention for their opposition to anti-racism efforts in New York City private schools. We have made the decision to not re-enroll our daughter for next year. Uh, this is really, this critical race theory is really a cancer in our schools and in our society. I read this, that you took your kids out of the school in New York, and I have been hearing anecdotally very much the same thing from many parents. When we looked at Riverdale, it felt perfect. It was really everything that we wanted in a school. It, it was not a hard decision. Martin's children, ages 8 and 11, attended Riverdale Country School, which costs nearly $60,000 per year per student. And since it's a private institution, it has more freedom over its curriculum than public schools. I think where things changed dramatically is, uh, is over the summer of 2020. Americans are in the streets tonight demanding justice after the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Thousands filling the streets from New York to Los Angeles. The school started sending out memos about a, a new approach, a new curriculum, and I wasn't sure how to interpret those, but there was a lot of language that I was unfamiliar with, um, references to anti-racism, that as somebody who has always been deeply opposed to racism, and myself, the the product of a marriage between two people from different racial backgrounds, I kept an open mind. One moment that, that gave me pause was when the head of the lower school sent a memo that told us as parents it was our responsibility to teach our children to focus on racial differences. And that's the antithesis of what I believe and what I know to be true. It was teaching them to see each other as defined by their skin color and to see each other 
as inherently different based on that skin color. As a black woman, I see things through color. I mean, I, I, race is a lens for me, and it's a lens that my, my children experience as well. And I think for someone to say, well, you know, I don't see skin color. I just see who you are. I think you're leaving out a really big part of who I am. You're leaving out my cultural capital. In 2009, Gina Parker Collins, who was one Riverdale Country School graduate and another still in attendance, founded an organization to promote greater diversity in private schools. You founded RISE. What is RISE and what, what do you aim to do with this organization? So RISE stands for Resources in Independent School Education. And goal simply is to make sure that um, independent schools are building stronger bridges with families of color in culturally relevant ways. We aim to attract families of color, black and brown families who value and are willing to invest in independent school education. It seems as though it's become this sort of big bad boogeyman that many parents and organizations are alarmed that, you know, students as young as, let's say, you know, elementary school students are becoming preoccupied with race, with their skin color. What do you say to that? I feel empathy for parents who are so worried about the idea that their children are feeling shamed or that there's just too much focus on skin color. Um, there, that's a privilege that you have when, in fact, you're part of a, a, what you might consider a monolith. So we don't have to talk about that. We can talk about other things. Um, and that makes folks feel uncomfortable. But this is, this is coming from a place of love. When I think of the work that uh, RISE does, when I think of the how I feel as a mom of two black children um, is, is centered around love and empathy. One of the things that um, some of the parents that we've spoken to that are involved with FAIR say is a lot of these lessons and conversations around race are, are welcome, but we're going too far and we're starting too young. What does too far look like? And what does too young look like when we know that the challenges of structural racism is a public health crisis. The American Medical Association has proclaimed that. The CDC has proclaimed that. So to act as if racism doesn't exist and conversations around healing and belonging don't need to happen, I just don't know where they're stuck at. Anti-racism and diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts in schools have recently become fused with a decades-old academic legal concept known as critical race theory, or CRT, which acknowledges racial disparities that have persisted in U.S. history and offers a framework to understand how racism is enforced in U.S. law and culture. There's no evidence CRT is taught in K-12 schools, but some initiatives at the K-12 level are inspired by its tenets. One problem with CRT is that it reinforces racism in that it implies that black people are in a permanently down condition or we're in a down condition that can only change with some revolution in the way people think that deep down we know is never actually going to happen. Also, CRT has an implication that only so much can be expected of black people until this revolutionary change happens. John McWhorter teaches linguistics at Columbia University and is a board member of FAIR. Surely, though, you agree with some of the goals, perhaps not the tactics, um, but some of the goals that, that these people have. And, and, and what are they? Oh, of course, power relations 
are important, that a great many people get the short end of the stick in society and really can barely change it. We do need to seek justice. We are an imperfect nation in a great many ways. We always have been and we will be for a long time. However, I contest the idea that these things are not taught already. Certainly, people need to learn about slavery and not just a little. People need to learn what racism is and that it's not just calling somebody the N-word or throwing a cross on someone's lawn. All of that's very important. But that's not what the new CRT crowd want. What they think about most is don't be a racist, don't be a racist. But what they want is for battling power differentials to be the focus of everything. And I think most of us know we'd like to battle power differentials, but it's not going to be the main meal. A few of the parents that we've spoken to who are critical of DEI or of critical race theory say, you know, there's an overemphasis on race by so explicitly pointing out what my color is, what your color is, that we're really only reinforcing racism. The structure of our society is built on race. Some of us see it and feel it every day of our lives like I did at the school where, where I was one of two or three other black people. We can ignore that, but what would, that, what would the point be? Is that a great education? When you bring in different perspectives and different people's stories and experience, it enriches education. It expands all children's learning. Now, have you seen bad implementations of this? Of course. Right? That's like asking, have I seen a bad math lesson? <laughs> right? like, yes, teachers are humans, especially as we're trying to figure out how to teach about race and racism. How do you address parents who are not comfortable with, with, with their kids being introduced to these concepts? Yeah. I take a deep breath. I figure out what I ask, what's making you uncomfortable? Talk to me. Because often parents have these ideas that oh, you're teaching my child about race as if children don't already have their own ideas about race, right? As if children, because they're observers of the world and they learn by taking in information, they recognize what they see. They see that there are different skin colors. They've already absorbed messages about race without anyone planning for that. In the spring of 2021, Concerns about CRT continued to escalate and started becoming a flashpoint at public schools across the country. The Sullivan County teacher is a step closer to being fired by the school district. The Sullivan County Board of Education tonight confirmed charges of dismissal against contemporary issues teacher and baseball coach Matthew Hahn. I love teaching this class to these students because I was that student. You know, I grew up K through 12. You know, we didn't talk about right. I mean, like Sullivan County is 100% or 94% white. Matt Hahn has been a teacher in the Tennessee public school system for 16 years and for the last 10 has taught a contemporary issues class at Sullivan Central High School where he and his students discussed news events and other conversations happening in the U.S. and abroad. Teaching this class and teaching this material is very, very important to me. Not only to me personally, but the kids want to learn it too. My students want to learn this stuff. You know, they see what's happening in the news. They see George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Jacob Blake, and they, they see all these things, and they want to know what is the environment surrounding this, you know, what is the history behind 
what's happening in the United States with regards to race. So how did you lose your job? Well, this goes back to the fall of 2020. It was the, the Jacob Blake and the Kyle Rittenhouse situation in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Protests over the police shooting of Jacob Blake continued for a fifth day. Blake is still recovering from multiple gunshot wounds. Kyle Rittenhouse, the teenager charged with killing two people during Tuesday night's protest, is appearing before a judge this morning. And I said, well, I have to talk about this in my contemporary issues class. And so I did, and I made the statement that white privilege is a fact. And I asked my students, what are we going to do to help or uh, contribute to ending racism in the United States? After the January the 6th insurrection, I assigned an article by ta Coates called The First White President. We were going to look at the 2016 election. We were going to look at social media and Trump being a good businessman, all the things that the students brought up. And it had some language in it. And a parent complained, and I received a reprimand from the central office saying that I was not giving varying viewpoints to my students and that the language in the article was inappropriate for high school students. Fast forward to the Derek Chauvin trial. One of my students in, in the class, in response to one of my questions, brought up white privilege. And I said, well, what is that? And so we started to research white privilege and then we watched a, a poem by Kyla Janae Lacey entitled White Privilege. And there is some language in that. Is European history being taught in the major and African is an elective? It is learning about my people only 28 days like I'm not black every second. We discussed it, had a really good discussion about it. I think some parents heard about the lesson, they complained, and I was given dismissal papers on May the 5th. Han says he was fired for being insubordinate and unprofessional, but was taken aback because he's been exploring social issues like these for nearly a decade. You know, we've discussed things like COVID, Me Too, uh, race in the United States, climate change. Now, those are all hot-button issues. Right. Yeah. Have you ever received complaints about any of the other issues? No, never. Can you understand, or do you understand, that white people particularly white males, may feel as though the conversations are, are sort of putting them against the ropes, that the conversation has sort of changed, and now they suddenly feel like they're on the defensive. And every conversation we have around race, it's, it's white males, particularly as the bad guys, the oppressor, the problem. Yeah, I can understand that. Um, but... You know, the way that I frame that to my students is continuing to live here in the United States and not do anything about racial oppression is a contribution to it, and you can make that choice. The increased scrutiny of Hans lessons aligned with a shift in the national conversation about critical race theory, in part fueled by conservatives working to politicize the term, as conservative journalist Chris Rufo suggested in his tweet in March of 2021. Now, no one has done more in this country than Chris Rufo to expose so-called critical race theory for what it really is. We've woken up millions of parents to the dangers of critical race theory. They're now starting to take action in school boards across the country. Here you are. Teach them to read. In the months that followed, 
critical race theory became a household name and videos of parents and teachers denouncing CRT at school board meetings around the country flooded social media feeds. Groups like Moms for Liberty have protested nationwide. The nonprofit was founded in 2021 and quickly ballooned to over 60,000 members in 33 states. I see you! You just got started? Yeah. This is the first real season. Oh, wow. Yeah. Robin Steenman is the chair of the Moms for Liberty chapter in Williamson County, Tennessee. You know, given the, uh, given the environment that we're in right now, racial injustice and injustice in general. What do you make of the future for your children? I'm worried that we are creating racial divides that we can't recover from. It really kind of dead ends in division, and that's what worries me. Can you say that that starts in the classroom? I don't think it has any place in the classroom. If parents want to teach their children about social justice, if they want to teach them about critical race theory or racial injustice, they're free to teach that in their home. It's their child. It's not really the public education system's job to raise your children. Steenman's Moms for Liberty chapter is gaining influence, amassing over 3,000 group members on their private Facebook group. And she says their goal is to prevent students from being introduced to certain ideas and imagery. Can you walk me through some of what you took issue with? Right, so here's uh, Martin Luther King and the March on Washington, a story that should be told. It's an example of how the curriculum chooses to teach the history is you've got this photo of the firemen spraying the black children. And it's a different voices exercise, and it goes through three points of view. The first point of view that you um, have highlighted here, the issue is this, is this is violence, and it's just not appropriate for second graders. Right. And in the second POV, you have highlighted we have to protect our citizens, our white citizens, that is. What's the issue there? What well, is highlighting racism? You know, that a police officer would discriminate based on skin color. Most kids would have no idea that a police officer could or would do that. Right. You know, and then you're teaching that, that this policeman is and has no problem with violence against children. So is this a simple... All right, everybody. There you go. That was a documentary here for tonight, so I uh, hope you enjoy it. Join us Tuesday, 6.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Blog Talk Radio, Restoring Our Republic. Everybody have a good night. Y'all been asking where the Trump supporters are, right? Why we've been so quiet? Where all the Trumpies at, right? That's what I've been hearing. We've been here the whole time. We don't need a safe space. We don't burn down our cities. We don't riot when things don't go our way. And if we lose a fair one, then we accept defeat with humility.
Thanks for holding her on the air. First off, I am a 
Prison TV Planet member. Awesome, brother. Go ahead and into your points, and I'll hold you over if need be. Um, if you really want to have an unbridged idea of what is going on today, look at uh, – it's actually a YouTube video, but it's a, it's a documentary, uh, Adolf Hitler, uh, The Greatest Story Never Told. He actually kicked out a lot of the bankers because they were trying to implode Germany after World War I. And it was the bankers. And when I was watching that, it was five hours long. And I started listening and saying to myself, wait a minute, They're, they are just repeating history. But because we are so dumbed down in the sense of our historical knowledge. Well, I haven't seen the documentary you're talking about, uh, but uh, people can, I guess, check it out for themselves. It's a very well-made, excellent and moving documentary called Adolf Hitler, The Greatest Story Never Told. I want you to do something for me as well, and I would really appreciate it. Before you listen to this interview, I want you to watch the documentary. I know you want to listen to this program right away, but if you haven't already seen it, I want you to stop this program right now and go watch the documentary first. And I'm adamant about watching the documentary because one of the biggest hurdles that the majority of people seem to have, they're basically just kind of set in their ways and they argue that they already know everything that they need to know concerning this topic. Well, I can promise you, people, you don't know one-tenth of it. I seriously had a panic attack after I watched that documentary, The Greatest Story Never Told. And for days afterward, I was really shook, shook up. It, was, it had such a profound impact on me and, and everything started making so much sense and I felt so... I mean, I've always felt kind of betrayed by, by the powers that be, but I felt more betrayed than ever. Mm -hmm. And I started and I started looking back on my entire life and yep. looking back at all the movies that I'd seen. I just couldn't believe it. I thought if they could pull off this, then anything is possible. Anything. Yeah. You know, and uh, that one, you know, I would encourage anybody watching this or listening to this to, to watch that hasn't seen that documentary to watch it and you can go with, back with and, an open mind uh, open mind and listen to that interview that you did with um, Dennis Wise recently but that's most likely what, what got us censored from iTunes by the way too that show yeah well that uh, shows it, what we're not allowed to talk about it's just yeah, it's yeah, off actually. limits you know that, and that's what when I was going through that sort of panic attack re realization that was it that, that was the that was the big red flag I was like oh my god like of course of course we're not being told the truth because we're not allowed to talk about this issue. When you're not allowed to talk about something, then that's that's like the red flag right there. If it's off yeah. limits, then that's the thing you need to talk about the most. And, to, and the rule to remember is that history is written by the winner. I can promise you, people, you don't know one-tenth of it.